Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Jock Bartley, the co-founder and lead guitarist of Firefall, Colorado's biggest success story of the 70s. The band landed seven singles on the Billboard Top 40, 11 on the Hot 100, and scored three best-selling albums. Jock has always been a Colorado guy. Welcome, Jock. Thank you for having me, G. When did you first pick up a guitar? My family had moved from Kansas when I was nine years old to the mountains above Colorado Springs to Green Mountain Falls. I was looking through the Sears catalog and I saw a red Sears airline guitar for $59, I think it was. And I just went, Mom, look, a guitar. And she was a musician, an accordion player, a pianist, and a vocalist. And she sensed that the one at the Sears catalog was probably not going to be a great instrument. And she had heard that the world-renowned guitarist Johnny Smith had just moved into Colorado Springs with his new wife. He had been Downbeat's top jazz guitar player two years in a row. I think it was 57 or 58. My mom set up a meeting with Johnny Smith, and she took eight-and-a-half-year-old me in there, and I don't even remember that. And Johnny evidently told my mom, well, he's a little younger than I usually take, but there's something there. And yeah, I will take him on one of his first students in Colorado Springs. He also said, we'll get him a really good instrument. And my mom bought a Gibson ES-175 student model. So I've been playing Gibsons from the start. And I didn't have to ever have a Sears Airline guitar to play. (laughs) Did you ever get a red one? (laughs) No, I I never did. Other than the birth of my two kids, starting lessons with Johnny Smith was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. He was just fantastic. And by the time I was, oh, 10 or 11, I was playing Bach Fugues and Duke Ellington. And he was writing me out improvised solos like he would play with his trio or something. It was the greatest of great experiences. The thing that I learned most from Johnny Smith in my five years of taking lessons from him was that taste is not what you play, but it's what you don't play. And he could play faster than probably any guitar player on the planet, and he hardly ever did play fast. And when you'd see him play or listen to his many records on Verve, There were times when he would play a musical passage and then just let it hang out there and have a big space talk and then play again. I learned from watching him that a lot of the times some of the best things you can do is not to play. Play a musical passage and wait, and then play another musical passage. Playing solos on guitar was like having conversation with somebody. And many years later, I'd hear guitar players who'd play solos and they'd just go... It's kind of showing off. It wasn't conversation, because when you're up there playing, people get it and listen to your melodic sense. I don't think we can overstate Johnny's legacy. It's kind of been lost to time. 
he composed Walk Don't Run in 1954, which six years later became one of the biggest instrumental rock hits of all time for the Ventures. Right. Moonlight in Vermont kind of invented the cool jazz genre in the right. early With Stan Getz yes, playing exactly. on Moonlight. In my life, there's been a number of fated moments that, looking back, really were supposed to happen. And the one with Johnny Smith was maybe the biggest. Was your motivation to make your mom proud more than proving your old man wrong? (laughs) (laughs) I had music running in me from when I was a little kid. There's the story when I was living in Kansas and my mom would be playing her upright piano. And the first time I ever heard a minor chord, I cried when I was like two years old and said, Mommy, that's so sad. A lot of musicians have it in their soul. They just have to figure out what instrument they want to play and how they pursue that. But I was always musical and started in Kansas taking piano lessons and playing do-do-do-do-do-do. It was really boring and it didn't take. But when I got to Colorado and suddenly rock and roll was taken off and I saw that Sears Airline guitar for $59, I thought, man, it maybe was about pleasing mom and continuing her legacy because she never really got to do what she wanted to. She wanted to be an accordion player or a piano player or a vocalist in a big band, and she never really got to do that, particularly having kids and stuff. My dad was, like many fathers in the 1950s, aloof and working for the money, and I want my dinner on the table, and just really hard and not really open. And on Christmas Day... I was eight and a half years old. We had finished opening presents. I had uh, two brothers at the time and a sister. And my mom said, oh, there's one more present, and it's for Jock. And I perked up, and she went into her room and dug her in in the closet and brought out my Gibson guitar. And I just freaked. That's a cherished moment for me, but I remember looking around the room And everybody was blown away or happy except my dad. And he obviously was thinking, I don't know how much that damn thing cost, but you didn't check with me. And he was upset that she had paid whatever it was for a guitar for me. And it was, for me, one of the most courageous moments I ever saw my mom do. Because she stood up to him and she gave me my guitar and basically kind of gave me who I was. And, as an aside, she was smart enough to not bring out the little Fender amp that was in the closet, too. (laughs) It was bad enough for my dad to uh, accept that I'd just gotten a guitar. But I immediately started taking lessons from Johnny Smith. How old were you when you saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan? Well, I'm born in 1950, so I was 14. Yeah, 1964, when the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan, that was the night the world changed for millions and millions of young kids. And I also remember in the weeks after that, when my dad took me to the barbershop, I said, no, I'm not getting a crew cut. He said, yes, you are, and we had a huge battle right then. No, I saw the Beatles. I'm growing (laughs) my hair. So I was 14, freshman in high school, I think, I'd played guitar a couple years already, but when the Beatles hit and people in my class were starting to think, man, the Beatles, I'd love to play guitar, I was already four or five years in, and I was already pretty good. 
And my first band I joined with all the guys that were seniors in Manitou Springs High School. I was a freshman, so I was the baby, but being in bands was great. You ended up going to Boulder to matriculate, University of Colorado at Boulder. I graduated high school in 68, and that fall came up to Boulder and was in the dorms. What a time in Boulder. SDS and the Vietnam protests, and at one point all the young kids did a sit-down on 28th Street right when it came into Boulder, and it was pretty darn amazing. It took me a while, and I was in a couple of bands, and we played clubs, and we'd play Tulagis, or we'd play the Buff Room, and the music scene in Boulder was so different than even Denver. All these college kids and these eclectic musicians and artists, of course, it was the stoner days, and it was just so much fun. Harold Fielding, who was the drummer in Flash Cadillac, I remember him saying, hey, man, you got to come down to the buff room. There's a new kid in town, Tommy Bolin, and he's going to sit in with, at the time, it was Ethereal Zephyr. They hadn't dropped the ethereal yet. And so Harold and I went down and were in the audience when Candy and David and Johnny Ferris and Robbie Chamberlain first played with Tommy Bolin, and they didn't know any songs together, but it was magical, and you could see from the first few seconds, oh, my gosh. Zephyr came out and made big splashes in Colorado, and they got their record deal. And I was in a band called The Children. We opened a show for Zephyr. Nobody knew it at the time, but it ended up being one of Tommy's last gigs with Zephyr. And Zephyr didn't know what to do. They had a new record they needed to make for Warner Brothers, and they basically hired three of us from the children to just move over and be in Zephyr. We didn't play very many gigs. We practiced a lot, and for the first time, David told me that he was really working on bass parts with Michael Wooten, the drummer, and we'd work out these lighter, more melodic songs, because Zephyr with Tommy and Candy were like a powerhouse. We were a little bit more mellow, the second version of Zephyr, and made our Warner Brothers album called Sunset Ride, and went on a little tour of Texas and Louisiana. And we ended up breaking up, but we made a pretty good record. And that kind of put me into a bigger scene. I was suddenly, hey, the guitar player from Zephyr. <laughs> and then in 1972, you switched over to Graham Parsons' touring band, The Fallen Angels, which also featured Emmylou Harris. Graham noted historically as one of the godfathers of the country rock movement. It really was a number of people out in Southern California, but Graham was at the forefront of it. So he launches a solo tour in Boulder. The story on... The guitar player in The Fallen Angels was, they didn't have one. And James Burton, Elvis's famous guitar player, played on GP, the first Graham Parsons record, and Elvis wouldn't let him go on tour with anybody else. So James Burton, one of the best country pickers ever, maybe the best, couldn't do the gig. So they couldn't find a guitar player they liked. And they practiced for two or three weeks for this tour without a guitar player. Finally, Emmy Lou said, well, I know a guy in D.C. He's a pretty good guitar player. And they flew this fella in who was mostly acoustic player. And he didn't really mesh too well, but the gig was two or three days away. And they were going to get in the bus and go to Boulder. They were supposed to play two nights at the Edison Electric Company. 
It later became the Dark Horse over there on Baseline. And the first night for them was pretty disastrous. Emmy Lou shined. Her singing, everybody in the crowd just went, who is this? But the fella, Jerry Mule, was so nervous, he didn't drink at all. He got really drunk and then played the first set. And the management evidently got in the corner after the first set and said, this isn't going to work. We need to find a guitar player. And I got a call from Jake the Snake, who was the manager. He said, Jock, you should come down here. I'll bet you could get a gig. I went, who is it? He said, Graham Parsons. And I went, Graham Parsons? He said, you know, he was in the birds for a second, Flying Breeder Brothers. And I went, oh, the Flying Breeder Brothers. Okay, sure. So I go down, and I hear their second set. And I thought, wow. Graham seemed a little out of it and drunk. And Emmy Lou was unbelievable. She was gorgeous, and she sang like an angel. And the band was rocking. And I thought, wow, this could be pretty good. So they were supposed to play the second night, but because Weather Report with Joe Zawinul had played there two weeks before and had exceeded the DB level, they closed the Edison Electric Company down the day of Graham's second show. <laughs> and Phil Kaufman, the road manager, the road mangler, went, where can we play? You know, we're in town. We need to try out this new guy. And they went up to the Pioneer Inn in Nederland. And I went and took my amp and sat in with them. Now, the good thing for me was the band who was playing at the Pioneer Inn that night was Grease Lizard with Jerry Jimmerfield, who played all these old rock and roll hits. And I sat in with them all the time. And so I got up on stage with the opening band and burned in my rock and roll vein. So they could see that I could play. And then when I got into sitting in with the country band, I was at a loss. I had no idea. But at the end of the night, all the band and Phil Kaufman and the manager put their heads together and said, well, we need a good rhythm guitar player. We need a good rock guitar player. And we need a really good country picker. And Jerry, the guy that was here, was zero out of three. <laughs> and they said, Jock's two out of three. I'm not a country picker. I'd never even listen to country music. He said, well, two out of three is better than zero out of three. And they walked out of the meeting and hired me. And we left the next morning. And you learned all the songs on the bus to Texas, right? <laughs> <laughs> on the bus to Texas with Neil Flans, the steel player, dropping the needle to try to have me be able to learn James Burton solos or whatever. That's one of the most fortunate things that has ever happened to me, falling into Graham and Emmy Lou's band and going on tour with them. I was not a country guy. My only experience with country licks was on Taj Mahal's record, Six Days on the Road with Jesse Ed Davis playing that solo. I'm going, hey, this is cool. But I had no idea about anything country. And it ended up that I honestly was the weakest link in the band and wasn't the country guy that they really needed, but it was faded and I fell into the band and it was great. So I had been in and out of bands, and I was painting apartments to pay my rent. 
I join into Graham and Amy Lou and the Fallen Angels. We play our first gig in Austin, Texas. Goes great. It's rocking. Everybody's happy. The second gig we play was in Houston, where out of the blue, Linda Ronstadt and Neil Young walk on stage during our set to sit in. And I remember thinking, three days ago, I was painting apartments and I'm on stage with Linda Ronstadt and Neil Young right now. And we played and went back to their hotel and stayed up till dawn doing massive amounts of everything and just playing. That was the first time that Linda Ronstadt had ever met or sang with Amy Lou. And so back in the hotel room, when Graham would just go in from one Leuven Brothers song to another, Emmy Lou and Linda sat really close to each other and blended their harmony voices together for the first time, and it was so magical. It's one of the high points of my musical career to have been there that night. That year, you also met Rick Roberts for the first time, whose touring schedule with the Flying Burrito Brothers intersected with Graham's. Rick was in the second edition of the Burritos, right. if he, you will. He replaced Grant. That was another reason, looking back, that I fell into that band, because Rick came and saw us at Max's Kansas City in New York City and was actually playing there as an ex-burrito guy. So we had Grant Parsons, an ex-burrito guy, playing on a Monday and Rick Roberts playing on a Tuesday, and he came and saw us play. Max's Kansas City downstairs was a transvestite bar, and upstairs was a music venue that had country music, so it was pretty strange. I got a break time. I think I'll go downstairs, and there's the New York Dolls and guys <laughs> with eight-inch platform shoes on. I met Ricky that night. You live in Boulder? Hey, I live in Boulder. We should get together. Now, he thought that I wasn't a very good lead guitar player because I wasn't doing that well. Under his breath, he was thinking, yeah, right, we'll get together. But when we got back to Boulder, he came to Tulagi's one night to see the Tim Goodman band play, which Stanley Sheldon, the bass player who later joined Peter Frampton's band, and me as lead guitar player, and he went, God, this guy can play. And he came up to me and said, hey, man, we should get together. I'm making a new solo record. He'd had two solo records on A&M. And the thought at that time was that it was going to be another Rick Roberts solo album and I'd be one of his guitar players. So I was learning all of Rick's songs. And then out of the blue, Mark Andes from Spirit had moved to the mountains above Boulder and he was playing with Navarro. Mark came and started sitting in with us and it really felt good with Mark and I playing on Rick's songs. And it became pretty obvious that this could be a band. It wasn't just going to be a solo record. And at that point, Rick said... I know this fellow in D.C., Larry Burnett, who has great songs, and he and I sing great together. I've got a couple of songs of his that I'd like to play, uh, and the first song that played was Cinderella. Mark and I went, get him out here. Rick bought Larry a ticket to Colorado from Washington, D.C. We had two really good players, myself and Mark Andes, and two great singer-songwriters, Rick and Larry. From our first day of rehearsal, we had about 25 or 30 original songs to play which never happens. Living is easy with someone who cares Someone to call you their own Living is lovely with somebody there Living ain't heaven alone Ain't heaven alone Rick Roberts said, you know, Michael Clark's driving around the great Northwest in his VW van. I'll bet if I offer him a gig, he'll drive down here. We said, get him down here. So suddenly we had a Birds guy in the band. A lot of pedigrees. A lot of pedigrees in that. And we knew we had our sights set for a record deal in the big time from day one. We started playing at the Good Earth and 
in walked Stephen Stills. Hey, come on up. And, you know, Dan Fogelberg would come and sit in. And it was just so much fun at the Good Earth before we had our record deal. And that break came in the summer of 1975. You and Rick and Mark were woodshedding as Chris Hillman's backup band. Chris Hillman, the bass player on The Birds. And the Flying Burrito. And the Flying Burrito Brothers. And played with Michael Clark. Chris in New York for a date at the other end. And... He got sick, so the club owner had to do something. We had a three-day stand at the other end. Chris had been not feeling well in the few gigs and days before we went to New York City. Found out that he had hepatitis. And the doctor said, do not play any more gigs. Go home, do this, this, and this. And Chris had to leave. There was two days where the Chris Hillman band was supposed to play there. And we just said, well, we could fly out Michael Clark and Larry Burnett and finish the two dates as Firefall and blah, blah, blah. And he said, okay. And so Rick's manager at the time had been talking to Warner Brothers and Atlantic and a number of the New York record labels about our demo tape, which Chris Hillman had produced. Atlantic Records came and heard us the first night we played there and came back the second night and they signed us within a week. So another one of those events that just all, well, it's too bad that Chris got sick. But. Say, thank God for hepatitis, right? <laughs> thank God for You finished recording the debut Firefall album with Jim Mason, the producer of Poco Renown. Yeah. You also confirmed the addition of a sixth member who was brought into the ranks during the sessions, David Muse, who could play keyboards, synthesizer, flute, saxophone, saxophone harmonica. harmonica. Yeah. When you listen to Firefall records, there's a couple of things that stand out. There's the great vocals. There's the really well-written songs that seem to reach people. There's my guitar playing that's very distinctive. There's David's sax and flute playing. And then there's Mark and Michael as an amazing rhythm section. The king of 4-4 and Mark, one of the best bass players, it was jazz-influenced. We had a lot of things going for us in Firefall. That debut album cemented the legend. Three huge singles. You yeah. Are the Woman, Livin' Ain't Livin', Cinderella. You know, Larry wrote Cinderella when he was 16 years old. He had that in inventory. Yeah, and you're thinking, <laughs> that's such a sophisticated song. And it lyrically got us in trouble a little bit because it talks about the guy kicking the girl out who gets pregnant and stuff. But it stands up today. Cinderella, couldn't you see? I didn't want your company. should have left that morning, left that day. Took your love and your child You are the woman, Rick's composition. At last count, it's been played eight million times on the radio. 
Yeah. Did you know what you had when he brought that in? It was kind of an afterthought because we had so many songs to choose from for the first album, and those songs included Mexico, Livin' Ain't Livin', It Doesn't Matter, which Manasseh had cut a different version of. I don't remember when Rick brought You Are the Woman in to rehearsal, but I know all of us, and particularly Jim Mason, went, here we go, okay. And it wasn't indicative of what the rock band Firefall played like, but thank God we had a song that was geared toward that. You are the woman that I've always dreamed of. I knew it from the start. I saw your face and that's the last I've seen of my heart. Rick and Larry were such different personalities and songwriters. When Rick would write a song, he'd think about getting that thing on the radio and making money from radio play and having 18 to 25-year-old women call the radio station saying, I love that You Are the Woman song, will you play it? So he wrote in a formula that was geared toward love songs, very commercial. He timed them when he would write them. Anything over three and a half minutes, wrong. we got to cut out something. And then Larry Burnett wrote songs as a purging of his soul, almost. It would be, ah, really dark sometimes. Opening that vein. Yeah. We made a really good record with Jim Mason at Criteria in Miami. It was funny because we were thinking, why don't we just go up the road to Caribou and make our record up there? And we couldn't afford to drive up the road to Caribou because Caribou was $3,000 a day, 24 hours lockout. We made a really good record, and it ended up being, at the time, Atlantic Records' quickest gold record in their history, which blew my mind because they had the Stones and Aretha and Led Zeppelin and all that, and we had that distinction for however long it lasted, but we went gold within the first month or two. You experienced a personal career highlight down there in Criteria. We allude to Johnny Smith being your first big influence, the Beatles the second, and you've always mentioned Eric Clapton as maybe being the third in terms of opening the landscape for rock guitarists. So you're in the studio at Criteria, and you're laying down your guitar solo for the song Mexico, one of the deep tracks on that debut album. Because we'd been playing two years up to that point. I knew that that was going to be my place to shine as a lead guitar player. I've told Rick that I was born to play on his song, Mexico. People are in and out of the control room, and I'm warming up, and Jim Mason says, you ready? And I say, yeah, and we start playing, and it's going good, and my amp sounds great, and I'm playing good, and it's sounding great, and we get to the solo part of my section, and the day before, we had added the mariachi horn section that came in, which was a brand new thing for me to contend with in the middle of my solo, so I had no idea where they were coming, and then there they are, and I stopped, and then I played, and then they played, and it ended up being a one-take solo. Mason pushed the button and said, man, that was great, come on in. I went, I was totally in the dark where the horns were, keep what I did and let's see if I can beat that solo section. And Mason said, no. And I went, no, come on, keep what I did, let's see if I can just beat the solo. And he says, no, come in. 
So I go, yeah, I take my guitar off and I walk in the studio to give Jim Mason a piece of my mind. And the first person I see is my hero, Eric Clapton, who's been watching me play. And it was just one of those moments when I kind of crumbled and hum, 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 hum. He stood up and shook my hand and said, keen playing, man, and walked out. And then Mason said, now what do you want to do again? And I said, nothing. I, I couldn't play after that. I bought the Fresh Cream album when I was either 14 or 15 because it looked cool. And when I put it on the turntable and I heard his first solo, literally the heavens opened up and that was possible. I'd never heard a guitar solo like that before and I knew that's what I want to do. To finally meet your hero and play good while he's watching was great. The heavens opened up for Firefall. You notched so many more hits. Just Remember I Love You, Strange Way, a couple of best-selling albums, Lunacy and Elan. The headiest time might have been that opening slot for Fleetwood Mac right. on their Rumors tour. And they were definitely the biggest band in the world at that time. That all culminated with a hometown gig for you guys, Folsom Stadium in Boulder, 61,000 people. Mm -hmm. Three years earlier, we'd been at the Good Earth. We certainly had our problems and we had our issues and we had money troubles and personality conflicts. But boy, when you peel it away and look at just the music that we made and the timing of it all, I'm so lucky and fortunate. And you have to be humble about that. It can't be on an ego trip. It's a really humbling experience to walk out on stage and there's 100,000 people out there waiting to see Fleetwood Mac and you get to do your 35 minutes of your stuff and hold your own. You allude to negotiating all of the music business vagaries beyond just the music itself. You were marketed with the singles that were Rick's softer ballads, and they stereotyped the group to a degree. Yep. The Colorado Sound. Just remember I love you, and it'll be all right. Just remember I love you more than I can say. Well, it was a problem for a while because with You Are the Woman and Just Remember I Love You being the huge hits and people from AM radio who would come to our shows to hear those songs, we'd certainly play them, but we'd also play Larry's Get You Back or sometimes, heaven forbid, Sharpshooting at the Senator. We were a rock band that had a bunch of ballads, and thank God we had them. I don't think Atlantic had anything to do with coining the phrase the Colorado Sound. I don't know where that came from, but I do think that we were and still are representative of that kind of sound that culminated after Joe Walsh, Dan Fogelberg, Stephen Stills came to the mountains above Boulder and that whole birds, Manassas, eagles kind of thing, we were the top branches of that family tree. And then after us, that tree was complete. And other trees came up, like Tom Petty, who borrowed heavily from Roger McGuinn and the birds. To me, they're in a different tree. But to have that genealogy in our roots is just amazing. And it just goes to show about being at the right place at the right time and being able to pull it off and to be even thought of in the same breath as a Richie Fury or a Chris Hillman. Staggering to me because those are the guys. That first generation of people who played folk rock and country rock, to me, that's still as good as it gets. 
I think I read somewhere that they figured out the average shelf life of a given band is seven years, and you guys almost hit that right on the head as far as the original lineup. Yeah, might have even only been six. <laughs> it's not a new story, but it was your story. Egos, right. agendas, drugs, alcohol. All of the what? above. <laughs> and, of course, a few managers who were more interested in their 15% and grabbing as much of the record company money as they could. So we made some bad management decisions, too. And it happened to so many bands in the 60s and 70s. Before you lost commercial momentum, Firefall made a record with lead vocals by a female singer in the early 80s. This is a funny story. People don't realize how certain things happen. So we finished our album. For the first time ever, we looked outside for songwriters and found this song, Stayin' With It, by Tom Snow. Just an amazing song. And we cut it with Rick Roberts singing the lead vocal, and we thought, this is the first single, and it's great. And we put the album to bed and came home to Boulder. And our manager at the time, Ken Kinnear out of Seattle, who managed Hart, had a meeting with Atlantic, and somebody said, you know, this song needs something else. We love it, but it needs something else. And it was right at the time when Stevie Nicks was singing with Tom Petty and all these duets. And somebody from Atlantic said, how about a girl singer on this song? And Ken raised his hand. Hey, I've got just the person for it. So he had this gal, Lisa Nimzo, who he thought he would try to manage and get a record deal and everything. And so suddenly the unheard of Lisa Nimzo was put in the studio to sing a part on our new single. And we get a call that says... Yeah, boy, the single sounds good. We just added a girl to it, and we'll send you a copy. And we went, what? We, I thought this song was done. And they said, oh, no, it's, it's much better now with this girl. And we're going, what? And then they send us the song, and we're thinking, why? So anyway, like we had done a few times, went out to L.A. to do the American Bandstand, Dick Clark, and Solid Gold, and Midnight Special, and the TV shows, and we were going to sing our new single with Lisa, who we'd never met before. So we get out there, and in the dressing room, an hour before we're going to be on Solid Gold, we meet Lisa, and bless her, she's thinking, okay, this is great, and it's my chance to be on national TV, and she wore these spandex pants, and at the end of the song, Rick and Lisa were doing the bump on the end of my guitar solo. And we're going, oh, no. <laughs> so it was totally not of our choice that she appeared on this record. But bless her heart, she sang great. The song sounds good. And it was a minor hit. But stuff like that happens. The record company decides that your song wasn't good enough. You wound up with the Firefall name, and bless you, sir, you've continued to tour with it to this day. To and this day. That's a huge accomplishment. You had a nice run with Stephen Weinmeister and Bill Hopkins in the band. Yeah, for about 25 or 30 years, once the original band broke up, I kept it going, and David Muse, the original sax player, would be in and out of the band. But I must say that nowadays, with Mark Andes back in the band for the last four or five years, and David Muse in, and Sandy Fick on drums... 
And once Stephen left the band, we got my friend Gary Jones out of Nashville, who sounds a lot like Rick to my ear. The band's really tight and sharp and doing well. And part of that is Mark Andy's driving the band on the bass like he does so well. Industry stories. That debut Firefall album went platinum. Kind of. Kind of. (laughs) It came out and went gold faster than any album on Atlantic, which is 500,000 copies. A platinum record is 1 million copies sold. And we were told after so quick of a gold that, oh, it's approaching platinum. It's 800,000. Oh, it's 900,000. You're getting toward it. And we were just out doing what we do on the road, playing like we were rock stars. And then we made our second record and it did everything. And by the time we got to Elan, the third album, we were in our manager lottery. And the three managers that were coming into one of the managers was Kiss's manager, Bill Coin. Mick Fleetwood and Limited Management, who liked us from all the rumors to her stuff, and Fitzgerald Hartley, who did Loggins of Messina. We picked Mick Fleetwood because we thought, wow, he's the biggest name in the industry. And we kept asking, what's up with that platinum record? And as it turns out, Atlantic Records knew that Mick Fleetwood was going to come in and try to renegotiate our contract. And the way they looked at it was a band who had a platinum record other than just a gold record, had more clout, and they weren't going to certify it. And so they never did certify it platinum. Well, fast forward 20 years later, we did a thing at the Hard Rock Cafe. Somebody had called me who used to work for us. Somebody had broken into his house and stolen his gold records. And he asked me if we could get a new gold record. I said, sure, man, you earned those things, yeah. And while I was talking to the manufacturer, I said, could you look and just see how much the first album was? And they said, oh, you're a million four, blah, blah, blah. It went platinum in 1977. We're going, And so we got it certified 20 years later because they didn't want us to have a platinum record. Several years back, you contributed a song called Call On Me to a suicide prevention organization. When you're feeling trapped Painted in a dark corner Please don't wait You can call on me You won't fall through the... I had no ties to that cause. I was asked by a suicide prevention hotline who had just lost their funding federally down in Colorado Springs if I had a song that I could contribute to an album they were going to put out to raise money to keep in business. And the hotlines, of course, are talking directly to the kid in crisis. And then they said, we'd actually like you to try to write a we are the world type of song that's for suicide prevention. I said, well, I can try to do that. I actually had a song called You're Not Alone. The lyrical groove of that song was, we know the troubles you're going through, we're here to help. So I kind of borrowed the gist of that song and wrote this song called Call On Me. The amazing thing about that song to me still is that it's a really positive message about suicide, which is one of the darkest, deepest, most painful subjects we have as a society. The singer of the lyrics was the person on the hotline talking directly to the teenager or 20-year-old in crisis and telling him, you're a miracle, everyone but you can see. We're here to help, and let's get through this. And I wrote the song. They put out a little album in Colorado Springs. It made a little money. They helped to keep the hotline in working order down there. And I thought, well, I've got this song now. 
what do I do with it? It was my song. It wasn't Firefall. I know a lot of people in Nashville. Maybe I could do a benefit. So I started doing some benefits, and Michael McDonald was my headliner twice. Wynonna Judd came in. Journey did one in San Francisco, which was amazing. And in fact, at the end, they said, we'd love to play this song and have you sing it. And I went, okay. And after their set in San Francisco in front of their hometown crowd, I got up and Journey backed me up singing Call On Me. You know, I was really nervous, not being a lead vocalist kind of guy. I'm a lead guitar player kind of guy. But that propelled me into, for a number of years, being a national spokesperson for suicide prevention. And it was right around the time that Columbine High School happened. And when I'd go to conventions that they would have around the country, I'd meet the people that would man the hotline, and I also would meet the families of people who had one or two teenage kids that had committed suicide. I still do some stuff with suicide prevention. I'm there whenever I get a call. Nature's Way, made famous by Spirit, a Randy California composition, I Mm -hmm. believe. And Mark Andy's in that band, and Firefall has done a new version. We've been playing Nature's Way for a few years live on stage, and it always gets great accolades, and people go, oh, I love that song. Because back in 1968, it was an underground environmental anthem about be careful what you're doing to the planet here. Mark has always been a bass player who was not in the shadows, but he was never the lead singer in any of his big bands. I encouraged him, you should sing it. No, you sing it. We started doing it, and then we decided, well, let's record it. When Firefall was inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame in 2015, our dressing room was right next to Poco's, and Timothy B. Schmidt was there. And Timothy was telling us, with Mark standing right there, that... When he was in Sacramento as a high school kid, he would drive anywhere in California to see Spirit play. And Mark Andes was his hero on bass. Here's a guy in the Eagles, the biggest American band ever, telling Mark Andes, you're my hero. And they got to be more friendly. When Mark approached Timothy about, would you do us the honor of singing on Firefall's version of Nature's Way? Timothy said, absolutely. And suddenly we had a great guest star on that. Mark Andy singing a classic Nature's Way song, trading lead vocals with Timothy B. Schmidt, who's one of the best singers around. Chuck, what's your favorite musician's joke? What's the difference between a lawnmower and an electric guitar? You can tune a lawnmower. The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization, relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O music.org. Terrapin Care Station is a Boulder based, vertically integrated, consumer focused cultivator processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience 
to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.